Breaking Silos, Episode 5, Investing in SSI with Jonathan Johnson, CEO of Overstock.com. People are touting blockchain solutions a lot. We say, is blockchain necessary to the solution? If it's not, if it's a buzzword just being used because it's a hot new technology, we 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 tend to back away for it. We don't look we don't need blockchain as part of the solution as an excuse. If it's integral, if it's critical to the solution, then we think it's it's worth looking at and trying to own a piece of. Self-sovereign identity, or SSI, is an exciting new technology that's gaining traction globally. SSI puts you in control of your digital life, enables magical user experiences, and creates powerful new network effects. Welcome to Breaking Silos, the first program dedicated to the business models of self-sovereignty and the path to re-decentralizing the internet. I'm Timothy Ruff, your host and general partner at Digital Trust Ventures. My guest today is someone I'm very excited about and privileged to have the opportunity to have on the show. He's quite accomplished. He is the CEO of Overstock.com, a billion-dollar company. He is also the president of Medici Ventures, and we're going to be talking a little bit about what Medici Ventures is venture fund, and their focus is, is definitely involved with SSI and, and blockchain technologies. He's also the chairman of a very fascinating platform for tokenized assets called T0. We're going to ask him to tell us a little bit about that. And through the investments that they've made, uh, he is now on the board of directors for a number of companies, and we'll be hearing a little bit about those. He's also the executive board member of Silicon Slopes, uh, an annual tech conference in Utah that's now attracting almost 20,000 people. Very exciting. Welcome, Jonathan Johnson. Timothy, thank you for the invitation. It's great to talk with you. And boy, you said so much about me. It sounds like I'm applying for a job. I apologize for that. No, well, it, it's uh, it's really impressive what's happening. And, and it's important to understand your background because of your commitment to the space that really is fundamental to the to Breaking Silos, this podcast and the movement that we care so much about. So before we dive into that, as a little bit of aside from our topic, Overstock is a billion dollar company and major retailer was the very first to begin accepting Bitcoin. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the thinking behind that decision and how it's gone for the company? Sure. Overstock began accepting Bitcoin as a payment method in January 2014. And we really did so for two reasons. One, as a retailer, we always want to make it easier for customers to buy product from us and whether they want to you know, use a credit card or uh, PayPal or any payment method, we want to facilitate that. So as Bitcoin began to gain popularity, several of our developers said, hey, why can't we have Overstock except Bitcoin? And we said, hey, if it makes it easier for people to buy stuff from us, let's do it. So. Reason number one was selfish. We wanted to make it easier for people to buy stuff from us. Reason number two was we were very excited by the blockchain technology that 
Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are built on. And we really see blockchain technology as the the new internet. If the internet was the information superhighway that made transferring of information free and frictionless, we knew that blockchain technology would be the digital asset superhighway that would make the transfer of digital assets. And that might be identity, it might be currency, it might be votes, it, it's anything that when you transfer it, you don't want to copy, you want the real thing. We knew that blockchain was going to be a big deal. And we wanted our developers to be more familiar and more facile with blockchain technology. So that was the thinking back in late 2013, early 2014 for getting behind accepting Bitcoin. Uh, wonderful. And you, you also made kind of maybe for similar reasons, an acquisition in a platform. I, at least I think you acquired T0. You didn't develop it from scratch, correct? Uh, when we thought about where blockchain technology would be useful and what we were familiar with as a publicly traded company, one of the problems that we saw that needed to be solved was the settlement of the trading of stocks. So when you go out and buy a stock, you you pay money and you expect to get your certificate. And that settlement happens in two days after the trade or what the industry refers to as T plus two. We knew that with blockchain technology, that period of delivery could be reduced from two days to where the trade could actually be the settlement or could be trade plus zero or T0. So we went out and bought uh, something that's called an alternative trading system. It's like an exchange. We bought a broker dealer that hooks up people that want to buy and sell stocks. And we folded them all under a company that we named T0. And today Overstock, through its wholly owned blockchain investment company, Medici Ventures, uh, owns 80% or more of, of T0. Okay. And I think that is a very shrewd investment uh, because I see a, a tremendous uh, growth in tokenized assets. Right now you see, of course, cryptocurrencies, but there's so many other things that can be tokenized. And the reason why I mention that is because that's going to generate a lot of keys. Uh, people are going to have keys to these these tokenized assets that they need to protect. And key management, I think, is a is a massive future industry, and of course, a big part of self sovereign identity. Um, speak a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about what you see as far as tokenized assets in in what arenas. Like uh, you were doing something with real estate at one point. Is that something that you see coming soon? So I think the companies that are looking to list, tokenize and list their assets on the T0 platform include real estate. You know, historically, real estate has been held in privately held firms. Uh, the real estate generates rent and income, uh, but it's hard to sell out in small pieces. You have to sell the whole apartment complex or sell the whole office building. What we see happening in real estate is if I own, you know, 15 commercial buildings around the United States, I could tokenize maybe ownership in 10% of all of them, sell those tokens out in, you know, 
small batches so that you could own you know, maybe one one hundredth of that 10% of the entire portfolio I have. That token would be freely tradable, so it would be liquid, and the holder of that token would be, would his right would be to a, a portion of the rent of those buildings. But real estate is someplace that's ripe to be tokenized. Art, uh, music, any kind of intellectual property uh, that earns a royalty, that could be tokenized so multiple people could own a portion of it and it could be held that way. Companies, just like companies are sold, sell stocks, uh, that give an ownership interest to them, that could easily be tokenized and, and be made much simpler than the current stock market. So there's a lot of future. I've, even athletes have talked about tokenizing themselves and giving a portion of their future earnings to token holders who you know, would be entitled to maybe 10% of an athlete or an artist's uh, income over the next five or 10 or X years. I find that to be fascinating, especially when you talk about assets that generate some kind of cash flow through either licensing or royalties, as you say. Uh, and the athlete example, I've never heard before. That is that is very cool. I want to move on to uh, Medici Ventures. And by the way, it's not Medici, which I'm tempted to say. It's Medici. Is that correct? That's the way I say it, but I'm not from Italy, so, <laughs> okay. you know, that, that, that's my own pronunciation and maybe bastardized. All right. So, so Medici was formed to make investments in the blockchain space and has now made some investments in self-sovereign identity. Talk a little bit about uh, Medici's thesis and how it's gone so far. We're looking at Medici to take ownership interests in companies in kind of four to six different silos. One is companies that are using blockchain in the identity space. And, you know, you and I will talk about that in, in more detail because I think both of us think that's a huge opportunity in the blockchain space. The second area that we look at is property rights, particularly land titling, helping people prove they own, they have ownership to their own property. Uh, a third area is banking, central banking and currency. And, you know, most people are familiar with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are built on blockchain technology. Fourth area is blockchain meets capital markets. And we talked about T0 and tokenizing assets so that they can be traded and monetized. The fifth area is supply chain. As goods move through a supply chain, blockchain can help track them. And that helps in several ways. It helps prove the provenance of the good. So you know, you know you're not buying counterfeit. It helps show where the good came from in case there was, for example, tainted lettuce uh, on a uh, grocery store shelf. You can do a targeted recall and not recall all your lettuces but only the letters from the farm that proved to be tainted. It, it also allows for quicker payment to, for example, farmers who are bringing grain into a grain elevator or silo. They can be paid quickly because they can prove through blockchain technology that they've transferred their goods. And then the sixth area that, that we 
think blockchain really applies to and are looking for companies uh, to have an ownership interest is voting. Uh, a vote is a is a digital asset, and when you cast it, the county clerk or whoever's counting the vote doesn't want you to be able to cast your vote more than once in a particular election. And so voting is another digital asset that we think blockchain technology really helps solve some problems. You know, voting, uh, all of those are interesting. Voting is one that I've spent some time looking into uh, recently. It is really complex. Uh, it, it's not as simple as people think. I mean, in terms of the privacy uh, restraints that you have, or constraints is the better word, where you know you have to make sure that only someone who's entitled to vote can vote, but yet you can't cast the vote in a way that actually you can tie it right back to an individual so that someone might be able to persecute or, or give some disadvantage to people who didn't vote in a favorable way. And so the auditing, the privacy uh, capabilities associated with auditing, very complex. And I, I do think that self-sovereign identity has uh, some real nice advantages and innovations. I, I even went so far, Jonathan, as to reach out to some of the top uh, uh, electronic voting experts in the world. And, and as you know, there's a really strong bias among, among voting experts that you just can't do internet voting. It's just like, can't be done. And, and, and they make good points, but there's a, just a real strong uh, bias that will have to be overcome before we see those kinds of technologies. But I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's going to come. And I'm really excited that you guys are investing there. Thank you. Just commenting on that, you know, mobile voting done over blockchain technology. If I can prove who I am, uh, so that a county clerk can give me the right ballot, and then I can cast the ballot in a cryptographically secure way so that the county clerk knows it's a ballot that should be counted and doesn't know that it's my ballot. Uh, but if I can use self-sovereign identity to prove I shouldn't be able to cast that ballot, it, it's really, I think, where the future goes. And there are a lot of people that are disenfranchised either because they're serving or living overseas because they are disabled and it's hard to get to the polls. This is a group that has a problem with non-remote in-person voting that can be solved with self-sovereign identity used in the blockchain mobile voting space. I, I do agree that there's some possibilities there. And you know, when I when I took my understanding of self-sovereign identity, which is fairly extensive uh, to some of these experts in conversation, uh, they they quickly shot down some of the stuff that I said. So it's not going to be an easy lift uh, from what I can tell. But I but I remain optimistic and I do think that there is a a great solution there. All right. I want to move on to some of the business models and, and I, some of the you mentioned some of the verticals, but what are some of the business models? I think that's lacking oftentimes when people look at, at blockchain or even self-sovereign identity, it's like, what is the product and who is buying it? And let's just stick with voting for a minute. So with voting, what is the product? The company that, that you've invested in is called Votes, V-O-A-T-Z, is that right? That's correct. Okay, and with, who, is, who is their customer and what are they buying from votes? 
So the customer will be a secretary of state, a county clerk, whoever is overseeing the voting process in the jurisdiction. What they're buying thus far has been a way to help people that have a difficult time getting to the polls. First started with overseas military personnel and their families, giving them a way to vote safely and securely over a mobile phone. So it's a service? Is it, it's, it's an app? And is there a tabulation capability back at the, the main election center? And, and the app works with that? Is that how it all comes together? It's an app. I'm overseas. I download the app. I show my government ID or some other way to prove I am who I am. I get the I get the ballot served to me on my app. I vote. It's cryptographically secure. It goes back to the county clerk. She then sees that a vote has been cast that should be counted. She can create a paper ballot that can be audited. But I've been able to vote in a secret, secure way quickly using the Votes mobile app. And today, how, how overseas military personnel are voting are through slow vote by mail. And there are parts of the world where our, our military personnel are that you know, get mail, or they're voting by email or fax in what's a non-secret ballot. It's very clear who they are and how they voted. Uh, the problem that's being solved is remote secret voting. Well, the other big problem that can be solved, of course, is voter participation, which is just abysmal. Yes. And, and I'll tell you this, overseas military voting runs in this country at about 8%. In West Virginia, when they rolled this pilot out uh, in the counties that they ran it in, overseas military voting went from 8% to 55%, which was about the same uh, rate of voter participation they had from people who went to a physical polling place. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and to me, that's the real reason why this is so important is, is participation. Certainly, we want to solve the problem for disenfranchised voters that are, you know, distant overseas. And, and we, we definitely want to solve that problem. But the bigger benefit to me is participation, just getting more people, even if they're in, even if they're not, you know, distant, just to make it easy for them so that they actually participate. So I'm excited about that. I think there's a day in the not distant future where it will be the way we vote. And, you know, it used to be, we used to communicate with people via mail, and then we did it via fax, and now we do it email or text. Things change. Uh, and they make our lives easier. I think within a decade, most of us will be voting uh, using remotely using a cryptographically secure app built on blockchain technology and probably requiring self-sovereign identity. I'd love to see it. Okay. We talked about voting. Any other business models among your portfolio companies or companies that you've seen, maybe that you haven't invested that you like? And when I say business models, I mean, what's the product? Who's the customer? I mean, because it's, it's very easy when we talk blockchain or we talk self-sovereign identity to get into here's a problem and here's a solution. And we can talk about the problems that, that it solves generally. But what I really want to focus on, if, if you can, if you're prepared to, <laughs> uh, is what is the actual product? Who's buying it where, where they're going to have margin, a way to make money? 
That that's that's you want to own companies that make money that have a product that people will use. You know, let me tell you another one in the supply chain space is a company called Grain Chain. Most farmers take their crop to a grain elevator or silo somewhere within a 25 mile uh, radius of where they've grown the, the product. That limits the people that they can deal with, and they're mostly dealing with people that they know and trust. And when they do, they're usually paid for their, they're bringing wheat or corn or sorghum, sorghum, they're usually paid somewhere between 30 and 90 days from the day they've delivered the crop. We, Grain Chain is a company that's using blockchain technology so that if I'm a farmer delivering to your grain elevator, you know the history of my grain, which it uses Internet of Things technology to see the water that I used to, you know, how arid the land was, the, the weather. You know the quality of grain I'm bringing to you. You know when it's delivered, and as soon as it's delivered, you are paying me in a grain chain token that I can hold or I can immediately refund for U.S. dollars or Mexican pesos. It does a lot of work on the U.S.-Mexico border. That's a great product that farmers and silos are using, and farmers love it because they get paid quickly. They usually owe money to banks that help finance their seed and their their living until they produce their crops. If they get paid quickly, they can pay off their loan, they can buy their next seed, uh, it cuts down their interest. And a lot of farmers, particularly in Mexico, like it because they can continue to hold that token denominated in dollars, and it holds its value better than just being paid in pesos. Green elevators like it because it expands the radius of farmers that will come and work with them. Now, instead of having this 25-mile radius of farmers, farmers are much more likely, if they're going to get paid quickly, to drive further to deliver their grain uh, and be paid quickly. Excellent. It really aids in, in really a cash flow problem that some of these uh, producers can, uh, the, probably the kinds of, pr- of producers that can ill afford to have a cash flow problem. Exactly. Exactly. The plight of, of farmers is often cash flow. So Grain Chain has helped solve that problem using blockchain technology. Wonderful. All right. Let's move to identity. Um, Self-sovereign identity. You've recently made an investment, uh, and, and this is public. Uh, you've participated in a round to invest in, in Evernim, which is dedicated. And that's, of course, full disclosure company I co-founded. I'm no longer there. I was a CEO for seven years and stepped down one year ago, and I'm now launching digital trust ventures and doing what we're talking about today. And Self-sovereign identity, of course, uh, I, I haven't left. Uh, I'm totally focused on the application layer of using that technology in everything possible because of what it's going to do for the world. What That's the way I, I see the world, very, very biased, of course. What about you? What was the reasoning behind the investment, and what do you see as the future of self-sovereign identity? I think the future is bright and large for self-sovereign identity. So many blockchain applications are going to need people to be able to prove who they are. And today, our identity is stored in different silos. 
and it's stored mostly with a bunch of information about us that really isn't who we are, our mother's maiden name, a nine-digit number that a government has given us. Then when someone else knows, when someone else hacks into that silo and accesses, they can prove they are you or me, even though they're neither you nor me. I am particularly interested in the intersection of self-sovereign identity and tokenized assets. You know, one thing uh, with, with T0 and just anything tokenized in general is privacy. You know, you, you may not want it known that you uh, purchased a particular piece of art or a particular asset. And if you uh, are correlated, if, if, if people can see that the same purchaser or the same wallet is, is now buying this and that, and they can go, go correlate and kind of paint a picture of who's doing what just by surfing a public blockchain, well, that's a problem. That, that's private information. So self-sovereign identity technologies can uh, not only uh, identify people and purchasers and solve an authentication problem, that's that's definitely uh, you know ground zero for most people when they think about the technology, but also preserve the privacy of the transaction so that there's no way you you might have a different completely different identifier for every transaction so people can't piece together who's doing what. Absolutely, you know I think we should be able to own things without anyone being able to figure it out. And frankly, when you look at I mean, even in today's stock market, there's a lot of efforts to figure out who's buying what company, where are they, how is, what does their trading look like? If we digitize assets and have tokenized assets, it should be easier for people to buy and sell without others knowing who's buying and selling. There's also a capability with self-sovereign identity for auditing, the audit trail and regulatory compliance that I think, you know, no one gets excited about regulatory compliance, but it's important, you know, and, and if you want to be able to, to prove that certain things happen between certain individuals or certain entities at a certain time, you now can, can prove those things cryptographically. And I, uh, do you have any, a, lo- a little bit of an aside here, do you have any investments in RegTech or do you uh, have any uh, opinions about RegTech in general? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, Piranova is a company we have an ownership interest that does back office regulating for banks. And no one gets excited about regulatory compliance unless you can do it well, less expensively. And that's what, you know, an, an immutable record, which is what blockchain is, uh, that can be audited is really a regulator and a compliance officer's dream. And I think RegTech uh, is a place where blockchain is going to have a bright future and there are going to be a lot of companies that do well. And we've seen Piranova build proof of concepts and now have product in production with some with a couple big banks that are it's pretty exciting. So you mentioned the future. That's how I want to ask you, what are your predictions for this space over the next, let's just give you a couple of time horizons, over the next three years, over the next 10 years? Well, my prediction are blockchain, and over the next three years, blockchain will become 
common, and over the next 10 years, it will be ubiquitous. And we won't even be referring to it. It will just be built into applications that will make our lives easier. Just like we don't talk about apps being built in Java or on HTTP protocol, uh, we just have apps that makes our, our lives simpler. I think we're going to be able to control our identity. That's going to allow us to vote remotely. It's going to make it easier for people in the developing world to have access to digital currency without having a bank account. Um, it's going to let us know that, that the goods that we buy are real and not knockoffs. I think we won't be talking about blockchain at all. We'll just be using it every day. It's kind of like what happened with the internet. You know, I remember back when computers were were really becoming the thing in my teens and and you might hear someone say oh i work in computers or that company is an internet company well now you've got you know what do you call those those gaming companies where they've got a whole bunch of people playing the game at the same time even though it's internet that makes that possible for a whole bunch of people to play the same game at the same time we don't think of that as an internet company we think of it as a gaming company and the internet is just behind the scenes so I completely agree it's going to move in that direction. So one final question to, to wrap up on, what advice would you give to other investors that are looking at the space based on what you've seen? Uh, the, the, obviously, you've had a lot of pitches. You've seen a lot of things in different verticals. What advice would you give? Probably twofold. What problem is being solved? And is that a problem that really people will pay to have solved? For example, do people really want to use mobile voting? I think the answer is yes. I think there's a certain subset of society where the answer is we need it or we can't vote. Do people without bank accounts want to have a digital wallet so that they can participate in the 21st century economy where digital money through a credit card, a debit card, or a digital wallet is required? So question number one is, what problem is being solved, and is that a problem, a solution people will pay for? And then the second thing that we really look for, people are touting blockchain solutions a lot. We say, is blockchain necessary to the solution? If it's not, if it's a buzzword just being used because it's a hot new technology, we 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 tend to back away for it. We don't look. We don't need blockchain as part of the solution as an excuse. If it's integral, if it's critical to the solution, then we think it's it's worth looking at and trying to own a piece of. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today on on breaking silos. Very insightful, excited, and I'm thrilled about the vote of confidence. Just your and, and Overstock and Medici's uh, participation, uh, investing, but just the, the overall exposure that you're giving it and that you're willing to come on the show and talk about that. Thank you for everything you're doing in the space. And thank you for coming on our show today. Well, Timothy, you're welcome. I love what you're doing with Breaking Silos. You have been a pioneer in self-sovereign identity. I don't know anyone who knows more about this space than you. And it's always an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Let's do it again. Let me know when.
This has been another episode of Breaking Silos. If you have any feedback, ideas, or questions about the show or this episode, or working with us at Digital Trust Ventures, we invite you to visit digitaltrust.vc and get in touch. Thanks for listening.